Welcome back to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. All right, folks, this is going to be part three of the Hellas series. And on this episode, I'm going to talk about the Third Battle of Krithia, which kicked off on the 4th of June, 1915. And I'm also going to talk about the Battles of June, which one is known as the Battle of Goli Ravine, and the other is the Battle of Carivas Dare. Although I don't believe it was officially called that in the book, I think they just called it the French attack. The Turks estimated they took about 14,000 casualties at the Battle of Goli Ravine alone. Now you add in the Third Battle of Krithia, the French attack, I mean, I mean all the allies, I'm estimating well over 20,000 casualties in the time period I'm about to cover. That's a significant amount of casualties. You can see how important these battles are to World War I historians and fanboys like myself. <laughs> Fanboy. I think I'm a little too old for that title, actually. More like fan man or fan has gray in his hair, man. But before I get into all that, let's say we do a little pre-gaming before the show. It feels like it's taken some time to get this episode out, which it actually has. And I do apologize, even though I'm sure I've probably overused that word. Trust me, if I could do this for a living, I would. Things are going to calm down here in a few weeks, and I'm going to crank out some episodes before it gets busy again. So I am sorry this has taken, to get, taken so long to get out, but there's always a good reason. <clears throat> Aside from my normal schedule, the wife and I actually, well, shoot, we actually had a busy but very great October. We got to do some traveling, and it was nice, real nice, something we've been needing to do. It's been too long. Like history, traveling and exploring is equally as important a passion of mine. Traveling and history go hand in hand. At the beginning of October, we went out to Nashville, Tennessee for a buddy of mine's birthday celebration. It was a quick weekend trip. I've, I've been through Nashville before. I, I've pretty much driv driven through the majority of the state of Tennessee a few times. It's a beautiful state, by the way. But this was the first time I got to experience Broadway of Nashville, the, the, the club, the music scene, the bar scene. And let me just say, if you're not familiar with it, it's like a country western version of Las Vegas. It, it's pretty wild. I'm pretty sure I took a few years off my life just on that Friday night alone. But it was a special occasion, and the wife and I had a good time with good friends. So yeah, it was worth it. It was fun. I think if I do go back to Tennessee, though, I would probably do Memphis. I feel like that age crowd... There's maybe a little bit more my speed. You know, if you're young, go to Nashville. If you're not, maybe think about going to Memphis. So we flew into Tennessee close to midnight on a Thursday. We flew back home on Sunday. Then that coming Thursday, we were right back on a plane, but this time headed for Beantown, Boston. I've been to Boston once, but it was for business. I didn't really get to, you know, see Boston, and I'm saying that with the quotation fingers. So this was almost like my first time really getting to explore what the city had to offer. And, and let me tell you, Boston is a fantastic city. For you history buffs, it just has so much to offer from, from the Freedom Trail to the Tea Party, 
Even Fenway Park has history to it. There's Bunker Hill, which that's actually part of the Freedom Trail. I mean, it's just an awesome city. And a note on that, when we started the Freedom Trail, technically most people started at the Boston Common uh, Park. I think that's what the park was, the, the big park in Boston. Well, anyways, as you start the Freedom Trail there, you go up uh, outside the park, you go up by the state capitol, and as you're walking up these steps, I noticed that there's a little memorial to the Great War. It had a little dedication writing right on the steps. I looked at it and I was so amazed by it. I took a couple pictures of it, but I was really in shock that I don't think anybody noticed it but, but me and my wife and everybody just kind of walked right by it. And actually that was kind of a real bummer to see that. But um, I feel there's a lot of that where people do just kind of walk by the Great War memorials when you just or maybe they didn't know it was there. Shoot, I, I shouldn't assume anything. Let me just say that. Uh, anyways, so we also went to Salem for a day. We took the ferry from Boston Harbor, which I really enjoyed. Wife was cold, but hey, being wet and cold isn't a new feeling to me. So I was good with it. Salem does go all out for Halloween for the whole month of October. I'll just say that <laughs> there was some... Um, strange people but overall it was really cool worth taking a day trip to see it oh and there's a really cool brewery we came across called the east regiment beer company great beers cool little spot if you're around the area go visit it it's really cool and so we spent some time in massachusetts then flew back i got hit kind of hard with a jet lag for a few days which normally doesn't happen to me honestly I don't think I recovered from Nashville properly and my body just finally got pooped out. And then uh, I got to work on this episode and here we are. Just me, a mic, and you awesome listeners who continually support the show. Now, let me tell you what I'm drinking for this episode. That's right. I'm drinking a Mai Tai. And before you say, what? Trust me, this isn't your pansy-ass fruity Mai Tai. This is the original Trader Vic's version from 1944. Kind of. Let me explain. There's this sort of cult, a group of people who are really into tiki drinks. I'm deaf. well, I'm, I want to say I'm definitely not part of the cult, even though I do have actually a tiki drink colder that I kind of ordered. But... I do find some of the drinks in history really fascinating. I promise. I'm not part of the cult yet. Yet. Well, Victor Jules Bergeron, a.k.a. Trader Vic, supposedly invented the Mai Tai at a service bar in 1944 when he made the drink for two of his friends from Tahiti. He took a 17-year-old aged bottle of J. Ray and Nephew's rum, combined with orange curacao, syrup, Orjat and juice from one lime. After one of his friends took a sip, she exclaimed, Mai Tai Roy! Which translates from Tahitian as out of this world. At least that's what it's supposed to translate. I know I probably messed it up, but you know me by now. The, well, the name Mai Tai stuck. Trader Vic gave birth to this cocktail. And there was another man who claimed he invented it. His name was Don Beach, a World War II vet who opened the bar Don's Beach Comer in Hollywood. But most mixologists, 
slash bar historians, I, I think they all give the credit to Trader Vic. Now, the reason I said kind of when I said I'm making the original recipe is because <laughs> there's not a chance at hell I can get a bottle of that rum he originally used. Some say they've seen it on sale through the internet starting at $50,000 a bottle. Again, not a chance. But you don't really need it. In fact, you can get a, a good blended aged rum and it'll serve the purpose. So the ingredients are three quarter ounce fresh lime juice, a quarter ounce simple syrup, a quarter ounce orgeat, half ounce Pierre Ferrand dry orange curacao, and the star of the show, two ounces of blended aged rum. I'm using Dewarly's. It's inexpensive, it's quality, and it tastes good. And, uh, oh my, <laughs> no, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> I, I just went to go pick up my drink and I spilled my drink, <laughs> no, no, uh, well, crazy as that sounds, and that just, what just happened right now. <laughs> like a quarter of it still stayed in the cup. So, hey, I'm not looking this as a complete loss. I still got, I still got some tiki to drink. So anyways, where was I? Oh, yeah, I was going to taste it. Then it flew out of my hand. So let me taste it. Make sure I got a good grip. Whoa. Oh, my God, that's good. I wish I had a full glass. Um. Yeah, that's tasty. Strong. You bastard. All right. That sucks. I don't know. I figured since we're here, to close, we're close to the beach at Hellas. And I said, why not? Let's have a tiki drink. But clearly I was just cursed by the tiki gods and freaking went flying out of my hands. And I did stop the recording for a moment. Obviously, I cleaned it up. But you know what? I'm not even going to edit that out. I'm going to let you guys enjoy and uh, just have a little fun at my expense with that one. All right. Let's do some recapping. Well, it's pretty straightforward up to now. It's been attack, slaughter, attack some more, more slaughter really has been slaughter after slaughter until they finally decided to halt the attacks until the third battle of Krithia. Going through the Hella series, you know, I don't want it to sound like a broken record, and I'm sure at some extent it does. But these battles, not only do they have historical meaning to them, they also steer the overall outcome of the campaign. But more importantly, these are battles where a lot of men fought and died. And it's important to keep their stories alive. I said on the last episode, I think it was the last, that in my opinion, it appeared only German General Sanders seemed to be making decisions that, that made any sort of sense. And I stand by what I said, at least up to this point. He's watching from afar, wave after wave of British and French soldiers rushing the Turkish lines, only to be cut down. He then halts the Turks from any offensive move and orders them to stand their ground at their defensive positions and continue to cut down the allies as they come. He realized it was pointless sending these men on the offensive. 
they weren't going to cut through the British and French line. I mean, anything beyond the rear line is ocean. Let them come to us. I don't think Sanders necessarily cared for the Turkish soldiers as if he's invited them over for Christmas dinner after the war or something. He just seen this as them not being the dominant force head on and actually seemed to be doing a decent job holding them off at the defensive. So he said, dig in, dig in good. They will continue to come forward. They have to because the only other direction is a retreat back out to the sea. And even Sanders knew that wasn't going to happen, at least yet. So, yeah, I, I feel like Sanders made a good call. Hunter Weston, Sir Ian Hamilton, on the other hand, they made some really bad decisions. And I know it's easy for a person like myself to easily pass judgment on decisions made by generals over a century later. A lot of us do it. I'm sure there was a lot more to the story, though. There was an immense amount of pressure coming from Paris and London to hurry up and get this thing moving which I'm sure weighed quite heavily on their shoulders. There's always the sides of right and wrong when making decisions that potentially can cost a lot of lives. And the amount of lives lost so far is unacceptable considering they just kept repeating what they were doing. Clearly, I know men like Hunter Weston and Sir Ian Hamilton, they're not morons. I just think they, I just think they lack something. Maybe it was a conscience because they were showing very little concern for the dead piling up considering they weren't learning from their mistakes. But this is the tale of generals in the Great War. The good majority of them and officers showed little to no regard for human life. I'm sure I sound like a broken record because I keep saying that on this podcast, but that is a fact. So the time between the second battle of Carinthia and the third the southern portion of Gallipoli became a death zone. In the middle, you had a no-man's land, just like you did on the western front. And on each side of no-man's land was now home to miles upon miles of trench lines interlinked together like your grandma's knitted sweater. There was the front line, supported by communication lines, supported by reserve lines or the rear line. Yes, there were spats of fighting here and there, but for the most part, the men dug in good while the politicians did what they did best back home. Completely screwed things up. And if you were a soldier in one of these trenches, let's just say the allied side because they're the ones about to hit the old dusty trail again, your mind must have been in utter disbelief that this is what it's come down to. You're thinking, man, just months ago I was back home picking daisies for sweet little Josephine. And now you're looking into no man's land thinking this is where it's going to end. Each day they woke, they must have thought this could be the day I die. It's going to happen. Just when and where, I'm not sure. How, I'm not sure. But I'm sure I will die out here. Because they could just keep throwing us over. They could read between the lines. They knew the politicians in the high command gave two shits about them. I mean, at this point, who cares about Constantinople? The real war is on the Western Front. For the British, this is the reason for them being in the war. It was to come to the aid for, for Belgium after Germany marched its troops into the neutral zone 
that Great Britain vowed to protect. And the French should be in France because the Germans nearly took Paris at one point in 1914. And that's what they're aiming for still. And if they take Paris, France will fall. And now these Brits, Aussies, Kiwis, and French are at some far off land fighting to take a city that really means nothing to them because if they do take Constantinople, Russia's going to claim it theirs. The whole thing was a political mess. They had no business being there. You know, the soldiers are just the pawns in this game, except they're playing with their lives. I lost count, but we're, we're well past a million in casualties at this point. Could be millions. And there's battles everywhere at this point. The Eastern Front is ablaze. The Italian Front is kicked off. You have colonies in Africa fighting, which I'll cover as I get into August. There's a war at sea. World War was a fitting title for the state of the planet during this time. Okay. Let me get into the bread and butter of this episode. Let's put the gravy on the taters. By the way, this episode has probably been released around Thanksgiving in the States. So if you're listening to this while eating that good meal, cheers to you. I'm going to drink the last couple sips of my, what's left of my tiki drink. Whoa. Yeah. That's strong. Good, though. I'm not kidding, man. This, old, this is no joke. Don't think that's some pansy-ass drink. All right. Let's get this started. The 52nd Division was ordered to support the Gallipoli campaign, and they were en route. Sir Ian Hamilton was in favor on waiting for them to arrive before kicking off the next attack, but Hunter Weston was well aware that the more time they waited, the stronger the Turkish, Turkish defensive positions grew. French General Albert Diamond was called back to Paris, and his replacement, General Henry Giraud, was also in favor of kicking this battle off quickly. June 4th, 1915, the Allies launched a general attack on Hellas, kicking off the Third Battle of Krithia. Of course, they used the same plan of attack that was used in the First and Second Battles, and because they didn't wait for the 52nd Division, this plan will become, what do they call that, a, a major foobar. You'll have to look up FUBAR if you don't know the military definition. This is a family-friendly podcast. Actually, it's really not. I mean, it's pretty brutal. If you've been listening, bodies rotting, rats eating the dead, men getting their heads blown off, and I drink a lot and occasionally spill my drinks. Even though the generals decided to stick to the original plan, the soldiers did their best to try and outwit the Turks. Before the assaults, they launched a bombardment of artillery, despite them being low in shells. They would seize the artillery fire long enough to entice the Turks to take up their defensive positions again, tricking them into thinking the ground troops were advancing. Then they would fire up the artillery again. <laughs> Crafty plan when you think about it. I mean, at this point, they had to get creative. And nothing's more crafty than trickery. And this is also when the British introduced the Rolls-Royce armored cars into this battle. Oddly, the purpose was really just to drive along the roads leading to Carithia with, with no plans. 
They had never been battle tested and nobody really knew what to expect. And as wrong as that sounds, they really were kind of just sent out there with, with no plan. They just basically wanted to see what they were made of, which really made no sense because, okay, let's say they did make it to Krithia. Then what? Are they just going to sit in there? I mean, really, what, what do they think was going to happen? Imagine you're that guy who's got to get in that thing for the ride. All right, chap, jump on in and drive towards the enemy. Where am I going? I don't know. Just drive the damn thing along the road. Okay. The car actually looks pretty cool. Although I'm sure it wouldn't be cool to drive at this particular point in time. It was developed in 1914 for the purpose of the war, obviously. The Rolls-Royce chassis were re requisitioned and they threw an armored body on with a turret. It has like a, uh, a steampunk monster mobile kind of look. Again, I think it looks cool, but you can be your own judge on that. The vehicle would continue to see action through the Second World War in the Middle East and North Africa. Preparations before the assault were made to fortify jump-off positions. These were strategic trench lines that were dug under the cover of darkness, which were only about 200 yards from the Turkish lines, as opposed to the average 600 or so yards. You know, these were much smaller trench systems that couldn't support a whole division or anything like that. They were meant for smaller groups of people to jump off from and quickly attack the front lines. One private remembers the preparations being made saying the following. We are sending out parties to cut our wire in front of us tonight so that we can get through. Every man has 200 rounds in his pouches, 10 in rifle magazine, and a loose bandolier with 100 rounds, making it 300 altogether to carry with them. Each man is given a gas mask and two empty sandbags to strengthen any position that we take. Then, a number of red screen are issued, myself having one to carry. These we have to fix in the ground at the farthest point of enemy ground gain so that our artillery can see them and so lengthen their range beyond the screens to avoid shelling our men advancing. The screen is a piece of red canvas, a yard square, nailed between two stakes, four feet long, to be driven in the ground. We are busy all night preparing scaling ladders and making steps in the side of the trench ready to go over at noon. Private Jack Gatley, the 1st of 7th Manchester Regiment, end quote. The plan for the troops was, the French 1st and 2nd Divisions would attack the Herakot Redoubt. On their left was the R&D, who would attack between Carivestier and Akibaba Nola. The British 42nd Division would attack between Akibaba Nola and the Krithia Nola, right along the Krithia Spur. And the 29th Division had the job of pushing forward through Krithia Nola to the sea. The Turks had the 9th and 12th Division dug in place, with the 7th Division behind them waiting in reserve. At this point, it wasn't much trouble for the Turks to pull reserves forward, so why ha have them all sitting on the front line? The opening bombardment kicked off at 0800 hours. The thunderous explosion of artillery lit up Hellas with fire and dirt. All the batteries opened up at the same time. Shortly after the artillery kicked off, battleships arrived from Lemnos and began to support the artillery with naval gunfire. The battlefield must have sounded like hell on either side of the line.
and around 11.20 hours, the bombardment stopped. For a moment, it went silent. Minutes had gone by, and the Turks assumed the ground soldiers were about to head over. They took their positions. But nothing was happening. The British and French soldiers had obeyed orders and didn't show their faces, nor return any fire. The Turks took the bait. Then, at 11.30, the bombardment of artillery returned. This plan of trickery worked. It almost completely annihilated the redoubts of the Turkish lines, completely exposing them. But, bum bum bum, here comes the first mistake. 12 o'clock comes. Infantry goes over the top. The German commanders are watching from the rear with Turkish commanders. They're expecting artillery to be lifted and concentrated on their rear lines, preventing the reserves from moving up and men retreating back. But nothing is coming. Not even the Turkish batteries were being fired upon. The rear line was receiving no shells. This was definitely a big mistake by the Allies. As noon fastly approached, men could be heard saying their last prayers, their final goodbyes to their loved ones. Some of the men were looking through the periscopes at the devastation the artillery left of the Turkish redoubt. But with the elimination of the redoubt, this exposed the line behind it, giving the men a clear picture of the machine guns that laid waiting for them to go over. It's a question of, would you prefer to see the man behind the gun who's possibly going to be ripping you apart or taking your head off, or would you just rather not see him? The men's nerves were rattling as they got the order to get ready. Their hearts were beating like rabbits. Time seemed to stop. They tried to control their breath. Then the whistle blew. The men rushed over, only to be greeted by a hailstorm of bullets. Men desperately moving forward under fire, men dropping to the other person's left and right. It was loud. It was chaotic. Along a narrow channel at Goli Ravine, the 29th Indian Brigade came storming in, but the artillery that was supposed to eliminate the immediate threat must have completely missed that memo to hit the area because the Turks were alive and in force. This narrow ravine had become a death trap. Turkish machine gunners were racking off rounds, burst after burst, belt after belt, covering the whole area with fire. Needless to say, it was a scene of slaughter. One of the few officers who survived the onslaught was second lieutenant named Reginald Savory. When he got over the top, he could barely see any, anybody from all the dust. So he boldly ran as fast as he could until he reached the front lines. When he made it, he stopped at its edge, staring down at a Turk who was not engaged in the fight, but staring back at him. Oddly, nothing seemed evil about the man as they'd been told. But regardless of the soldier's character, Savory had to make a choice. Either kill or be killed. Savory jumped in and drove his bayonet right through the man into the back of the trench. He skewered the Turk like a kebab. 
Later on in life, Sir Reginald Savory said that he still could see the poor devil's face grimacing as he pinned him to the rear of the trench. Next to the Indian Brigade was the first King's Own Scottish Borderers, who were also taking some serious casualties, but managed to make some gains by reaching the first line, then rushing for the second. Most of the Turks in their way either surrendered or dropped their arms and equipment and sprinted for the rear. This was truly a remarkable achievement for the circumstances, but could they hold it was another thing. It was about this time that some of the men witnessed a pathetic display of combat performance from the Rolls Royce. A captain described it saying, An armored car came along, spitting and puffing and lumbering. Nothing so ugly or so awkward ever was seen outside of a zoo. The very amateur bridge that the engineers had tossed up for them was just beside me. The car made for it. She got onto the planks all right, then her back hind wheel slipped over the side. And down she came onto the axle, and pretty well onto my head. Nothing could be done, so the naval officer in charge and the gunner climbed out. In getting out, the naval petty officer was seriously wounded. Captain Albert Muir, 1st of 5th Royal Scots, 88th Brigade, end quote. To the right of the 29th Division was the 42nd Division, who before this battle was seen as the weaker link after arriving at Hellas. But they had time to grow into their boots and to become a well-oiled fighting machine. They were now giving the Turks a serious fight. The Manchesters of the 127th Brigade led the fight. After going over the top, they ran into a wall of lead, but pushed forward with great fortitude. As they reached the front line, they jumped in. It was a frenzy of men shooting each other, sticking each other with bayonets, hand-to-hand fighting, Grenades were being lobbed everywhere, exploding, throwing body parts, and who knows what else into the air. But this only seemed to fuel the Manchester's rage. They fought and fought until they drove the Turks out. They managed to take the last organized Turkish trench in their line, making Krithia visible to them. Another remarkable achievement. Next was the R&D. Before going over the top, they knew the bombardment didn't do much damage to the threat that they were about to face. They knew the Turks were waiting, but that didn't stop them. They managed to take three trenches, but their losses were so extreme, holding these lines was damn near impossible without the help of reserves. This is where the 52nd could have possibly helped if they waited for them to arrive. The casualty counts was ringing in fast. We're talking hundreds of men just in the short period of time on both sides, laying dead or seriously wounded in the dirt. On the right, the French were still struggling to take Carivis Dare. Out the gate, it was complete disaster. And they get a lot of flack for this. A lot of historians make it sound like they had become the weak link. But this isn't the case at all. In my opinion, it didn't matter which division from which army from what country you put in that place, I'm willing to bet the results would be the same. The Nola in that area was one big no man's land and the the Turks had their sectors of fire well established so the guns can go over just about every inch of ground the French moved across. Unless that front line was destroyed, the French weren't going anywhere. If you could see it on a map, it'll make sense. Carivistier was a strategic point that 
If taken over, they could launch a flanking attack on the Turkish lines in front of Krithia. And flanking attacks are usually devastating, so any wise commander would ensure that the area is well covered. So General von Sanders ordered a large amount of guns and artillery to defend the spot. The Turks unleashed a massive bombardment of artillery on this section once the Pailus went over, supported by the machine guns and, of course, small arms fire. The ground in between the two lines just became one big death zone. The night before the battle, the Turks had fortified their location by laying row after row of barbed wire. It was as if they knew the attack was coming. The French could barely take a step, and those that did got caught up in the wire. And the rest is history for a lot of these poor guys. And because the French attack fully broke down, the R&D were now taking enfilading fire from their right flank. This left Hunter Weston in a pickle and French General Giraud in a cornichon. That's, that's pickle in French. So do they send in the only reserves on standby to support the French and the 29th Indian Brigade, whose assaults had failed disastrously? Or do they send them to support the lines the 42nd had successfully taken? This was a dire decision that had to be made quickly. They chose to renew the attacks on the French and Indian lines. And nothing changed. It was a complete waste. The French reserves moved up to support their own lines along with the R&D, but it, it didn't do anything. They still couldn't move. They were hit too hard from the start, and the ground was too well covered. The French were done for this battle. And the 29th Indian Brigade had the same results. The commanders wasted another opportunity to try and hold the lines the men had successfully taken. The whole plan relied on a French victory. And because of this, the dominoes began to fall from one side to the other. The Turks began to counterattack. And this was around the 1230 mark. You can get an idea how chaotic the scene must have been just in that short period of time. What a way to earn your lunch. The R&D began the retreat first, which put more pressure on the 42nd Division to the left. A private holding the position in a Turkish trench gave a good account of what the situation was like. He said the following. We are consolidating our positions and securing dugouts and take many more prisoners that are hiding in them. The whole trench is in shambles with dead and dying. Limbless trunks are lying all over the place and the whole bottom of the trench is running with blood which we have to move about in. Arms, legs, and heads are strewn about and being added to every minute by shells from the front and bombs from the right. We searched for the dead and wounded and took all bombs from their haversacks and used them on the right. Wounded were lying about groaning in pain. Private Jack Gatley, 1st to 7th Manchester Regiment, 42nd, 2nd Division, end quote. The men were exhausted. Dying of thirst, the position they were in was not a good one. The Turks began lobbing grenades in the occupied trenches one after the other. And what could the men do? They couldn't exactly just jump out of the trench. A soldier took one right under the chin and blew the whole of his face off from ear to ear. It actually hung down to his chest. The soldier stumbled in shock, groaning, with no face. 
only a blood-soaked silhouette of a skeleton feature. Finally, another soldier put an empty sandbag over his head and led him away, which he then passed away that night. And all of the horrors the men had seen up to this point, how bad this must have been for another soldier to put a sandbag over that poor guy's head. There's certain images that were probably too much for the men to handle, and I'm sure this was one of them. As night fell, the men were barely hanging on. Actually, it was really just the 42nd Division who was still hold, holding anything. The French didn't go anywhere, the R&D pulled back, and the 29th Brigade was equal to the French. But the 42nd Division didn't have the manpower to hold the line at the furthest point gained. They were forced to pull back in the darkness to the first trench line they had taken, which was about 500 yards to the rear. The Turks could make out dark silhouettes and open fire. The men from the Manchester Regiment double-timed it with bullets whistling past. Some were falling down from pure exhaustion. Others were falling dead. Finally, some of the men made it back to the line and jumped in. This is how their day ended. The next morning, as light began to rise, a heavy sea mist hovered over the men. And this was about the time the Turks began another attack. The Manchesters didn't even realize an attack was launched until the Turks were almost on them. But they answered right back with continuous rapid fire. They did manage to get two machine guns up to their line, and those guns also opened up on the Turks. They laid to rest row after row of Turks. But they kept coming. And everywhere the men could hear the yells of, Allah, Allah. Men later described their barrels glowing red, burning their hands to the touch. And this does happen. That gunpowder igniting is hot. If you've ever fired magazine after magazine with even a modern rifle, the barrel will start turning red. But we're talking a lot of rounds. Every able wounded man still able to stumble or crawl, were helping the shooters replenish their ammunition. And then finally, when they desperately needed it most, British artillery joined in the fight. Rounds were hitting the charging Turks dead on. Bodies were flung everywhere, and the Turks who weren't hit, this made them pull back. They weren't about to go up against the big guns. All of this was taking its toll on the men. Not only had exhaustion set in the day before, some of the men were starting to show signs of severe cases of mental stress. Death, mayhem, destruction, dead bodies everywhere, bullets constantly flying by, artillery constantly going off around you, soldiers being ripped apart. Naturally, mental health will start to deteriorate. One of the men started to show signs was an officer. He later described it by saying, I felt like there was something very wrong with me. I couldn't quite diagnose what it was. My spine seemed to be misplaced and to be made of glue rather than of bone. Yet I could walk all right. I went and started my evening's work, but I was listless. I could neither rest nor really work. Nothing interested me. Nothing. I couldn't sleep. After half past seven, I struggled down to the goalie. It was torture to walk. It was torture to think. I remember chatting with someone, I can't recall with whom. As I I began to eat, something suddenly snapped, and I collapsed into a sort of maudlin, weeping condition. I was all in. I felt that I was going to be going silly, 
and that I must have a rest, if only for one day. I had been under fire for 42 days. Captain Albert Muir, 1st to 5th Royal Scots, 29th Division, end quote. For 42 days, this man's nerves were taking a beating until he couldn't seem to control his body anymore. Many of the survivors of the Great War will live out the rest of their lives with terrible nerve damage caused from the stress of war, and the majority of the men received no support for this. Muir was eventually evacuated from the beach. He was a lucky one. Very lucky, in fact. Because many men during this war who showed signs like this were taken to the rear and shot. High Command's reason for this being they didn't want these men to bring down the morale of the other soldiers, which could have a negative impact on the outcome of this war. This type of mental breakdown was highly frowned upon. Very sad. Heavy counterattacks continued from the Turks through the 6th of June. The Allies didn't have enough reserves to fill the lines. The British artillery did help some, but the real problem was not enough men to hold anything. The Turks were coming on wave after wave. Minor attacks continued through the 10th of June. By this time, the 52nd had arrived, and after dis disembarking, they began to restock the depleted ranks, but it was too late. The Third Battle of Carinthia came to an end. They were no longer fighting for Akibaba or Carinthia. They were fighting over trench lines. It's estimated the Allies suffered around 6,500 casualties and the Turks 9,000 during this battle. The plan clearly wasn't working. The Dardanelles Committee met on the 7th of June. It was evident to them no progress was being made, but they had to make a decision. Evacuate or put forth the expense to send reinforcements. The decision was made quick. They would spare no expense in lives and money to accomplish the task at hand. They would send three more divisions to join the 52nd, but the key would be getting them there in the shortest amount of time. If troop transports such as the C-17, C-5 were available, this would have solved the problem almost overnight. But this is 1915. That technology is decades away. But they did have an idea. And for this Time, this time in history, it seemed to be a good one. They would use commercial ocean liners to ship the troops over. These types of ships could carry around 6,000 men with the capability of, tra of traveling at 25 knots. The trip would take about a week. It's not bad for 1915. A new attack was to be made on the 21st of June. This time, Generals Hunter Weston and Giraud decided on a new plan. This time, they would concentrate all possible artillery to support localized attacks. Basically, they would narrow down the attacking position instead of spreading themselves out thin, which would be supported by any and all available artillery to bomb the hell out of the Turkish lines before the attack kicked off. The thought was that by concentrating so much artillery on just a smaller portion, it would basically churn up the trenches, tilling, tilling this small portion of earth, obliterating the lines, giving them a chance to break through. And it would be the French Pailus who take the reins for this battle. They would attack between Ravine de la Mont and the Heracot and Quadrilateral Redoubts, the ones that had been dominating Carevis d'Air so far. And again, 
Instead of being strung out for thousands of yards, they narrowed the attacking front down to 650 yards, a drastic change in plans. There was a lot of guns brought in to support this. 13 batteries of French 75s, two batteries of 155 millimeter howitzers, trench mortars, and seven British howitzers, along with naval heavy gun support from the pre-dreadnought St. Louis. This was an immense amount of firepower concentrated on a much smaller area. It comes out to around one gun for every 10 yards. When the guns began their bombardment, it was like a raging storm. For the men waiting to go over, the earth beneath them began to rumble. To give you a better picture, the French fired an estimated 30,000 rounds during the bombardment and assault on the 21st of June. 30,000 rounds. Try to comprehend what 30,000 rounds will do to a front of 650 yards. And just a few minutes before 0600, the guns ceased and the pilus from the 176th Regiment went over the top. Their targets were the redoubts. To their right was the Colonials, headed for Ravine de la Mole. There is a minor flaw in this, though, in regards to the artillery. If you think about it, you might be able to pick up on it, but I'll, I'll get there in a moment. The 176th Regiment was successful out the gate. They overran the Haricot Redoubt and even took the Turkish second line, and after which they began to dig in. This is an amazing achievement achievement because they didn't get anywhere before this. And the artillery was still playing a big role. When the men went over the top, the gun team shifted their fire aiming for the reserve lines, preventing counterattacks and retreats. Again, I'm going to say massive achievement. The Pailus were finally making their mark. But here's where the flaw comes in. The Colonials also were successful getting to the Turkish front line. However, the artillery obliterated the actual trenches and the men found themselves with no cover at Ravine de la Mort. Again, 30,000 rounds bombing this front. There's no more trenches and, and bodies have been ripped apart, thrown about everywhere. Plus, side note. There's a, still a massive amount of dead from the Third Battle of Corinthia, just rotting away along the paths the men were going over. Getting to the front line was like stepping through an obstacle course, and now they found no cover. The guns did a little too much damage in this case. About an hour after the assault and after the 6th Colonial's commander was severely wounded, the men pulled back to their launching point. They tried to take the line again that afternoon, but were unsuccessful. Success taking Ravine de la Mort came when the regiment de Marche d'Afrique launched their supportive assault at 1830 hours. They managed to capture and hold the line. Again, I can't help but stress what a massive achievement this was for the French. But of course, it came with a price paid in casualties. The Colonials suffered some serious losses when they found themselves with no cover. The British would launch their assault on the 28th of June, known as Battle of Goli Ravine. 
concentrating on a series of, of attacks aimed at trenches that laid along Goalie Spur by Y Beach. They too would be supported by an opening bombardment of artillery, though not the amount of shells fired as on the 21st. The bombardment began at 0900 hours, and by 1100 hours, the men were crossing into the gully. The 29th Indian Brigade, after recharging their batteries, charged with fury, capturing several Turkish lines, reaching Fusilier Bluff. The men from the 1st of 8th Scottish Rifles didn't fare so well. With little artillery support in their sector, Turkish gunners laid waiting. Once they made it to no man's land, bursts of rounds came at them, another massacre for the British. The 1st of 8th Scottish Rifles ended up taking 400 casualties, 25 out of its 26 officers included. Things got really bad when the Turkish launched their counterattacks. The Turks were lobbing grenades everywhere, and a lot of the men were engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat across the ravine. And without any regards to casualties, the Turks kept coming in wave after wave. On the 5th of July, the British launched their final attack, and by this time, it was sinking into their minds of the Turks that it didn't matter how brave or how tough you are, you don't stand a chance against artillery. The pile of dead had become so bad again, and remember, a lot of these bodies have been rotting away since the Third Battle of Carithia. That sun is just baiting away on that dead. The smell of the rotting was getting to them. The situation was stinky. The Turks offered another armistice to gather and bury the corpses, but this time the Brits told them to piss off. The attacks during June proved something. If they concentrated all available artillery support on a less spread out front, they could make gains. This was good. And this was further supported by the fact that the French also took the quadrilateral lateral redoubt on the 30th of June. But the problem now was ammo supply. And I'm going to wrap it up on that note. On the next episode, the battles are going to continue. I said there wasn't, wasn't going to be long before I finished 1915. <laughs> I was wrong. There's still a bit to get through before I get into 1916. Several episodes ago, I did an interview with a really cool guy who runs the Muse Argonne American Cemetery named Bruce. I hope you guys are following him on Facebook because if you're not, you're really missing out. I was at the cemetery in the fall of 2017, and let me tell you that time of year is just stunning. Bruce has been posting amazing pictures, and God, I really wish I was back there, especially around this time of year. With a location like this, I normally would say pictures don't do it justice, but in this case, the pictures do it justice. The leaves on the trees are changing, the foggy mornings. Those workers do one heck of a job making that place look amazing every day throughout the year. Another reminder to go out and get a copy of Between the Lines by Nadine Amoros if you already haven't. The book continues to climb the charts. It's a fantastic read. Even if you're not a history buff, you'll find this book fascinating. <laughs> Christmas is almost here. Let's give a special gift to someone who would enjoy it. Ah, one more thing. I have a great war recommendation. Sort of. 
one of the groups, one of the World War One groups I follow, I don't remember which one it was, or I totally would give them a plug because I follow a few. But somebody posted something about a documentary called The Lafayette Escadrille. It's the story of American volunteers who, who flew and fought for the French during the Great War. I actually emailed the site, but the email was kicked back, leading me to believe nobody monitors any, it anymore, which is really odd. I mean, but the point is, it really looks good. I mean, I tried to contact them, see if I can just plug the show more. I mean, I, I want you listeners to watch it as, as bad as I want to watch it. And I believe it's airing on PBS in certain areas. Unfortunately, not my area. I'd really like to get a hold of this to watch it. If anybody out there has more information on how to get a hold of it, if you'd be so kind to pass this information along to me, I would greatly appreciate it. And I will for sure pass it along to my listeners. Well, folks, it's been a long episode. <laughs> kind of strange, you know, probably going to go make a drink right after this. But uh, I'm going to wrap this up right here. Thank you for your continued support. You fans are the best. I just get the most amazing feedback from listeners. And I, I just can't tell you how great that makes me feel. I hope you're in good health. I hope everyone's safe in this crazy time. And until the next episode, take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.